did not have a clean start. Habits of the surrounding culture lingered and polluted the hearts of new Christ followers. In 1 Corinthians, Paul seeks to answer the question, what does the gospel teach us about living for Christ in a corrupted world? What does it say about unity, division, worship, sexual integrity? How can we use the gospel to cleanse a dirty church? Hi. It's, uh, it's great to see you. It's great to have all you folks from all the other campuses join us. Guys, here at Elgin, I haven't been here for a month or something like that. That was probably one of the best months of your life. But uh, here I am back, at, live and in the, in the flesh. I told somebody the other day when they met me in the street, I, this happens all the time. They said, oh, you're, you're different in person. And I was like, <laughs> they were really disappointed, actually. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> So we'll just keep it this way, right? It's better to have me on the screens. Um, listen, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. I have a good friend who is a business consultant. He, uh, he's helped me a great deal with understanding how it is that you ought to lead things, and i um, always very excited about uh, Always very excited about um, what it looks like to give input to people who um, maybe have not received it before. His, his uh, philosophy is basically the more you can help people understand what's expected of them in the workplace and also give them you know, regular feedback about how they're doing, then the better, better things will be. In order to do this, he's written a book. It's a great book, actually. It's called The Power of People Skills. And um, in the book, he tries to explain what he calls a star chart. And I share this with all sorts of people. So listen, if you're in, the, if you're in a business background or whatever, he usually charges like $1,000 to do this. So this will be free, I think. I hope this is going to work. Is it not working? Can you guys maybe bring the, bring the thing up for me? Anyway, I'll start describing it as I stand here. All right? So, I want you to think in your mind of a y-axis. Uh-oh, everybody freaked out. They're like, wait a minute, is that math? Kind of. So, a y-axis and an x-axis, right? The x is horizontal, the y is vertical. Oh, see, now I can draw it. You guys are like, thank God. That was not, <laughs> that wasn't going well. Here we go. So, this is the x, this is the y. So along this axis, what I'm going to say is this has to do with productivity, right? So how, how productive are you? How much uh, outcome can you produce in your, in your particular job? And, and this side is attitude. Well, just A-T-T. You know, do I like it? Am I positive with the people around me? Am I positive with my boss when they talk to me? These sorts of things, right? So he would say that you have attitude and you have productivity. Now we're going to split this into four quadrants. Here we go. This is the A quadrant, this is the B quadrant, this is the C quadrant, and this is the D quadrant. What every single boss, what every single owner, what every single manager in the entire world wants is a whole bunch of these. Highly productive, good attitude people. When you have those people... You sing their praises. You try to do whatever is necessary to keep them around. If you've got a good attitude and you're highly productive, 
awesome. In fact, the more A players, he would say, that you have in your organization, the more that organization will be primed for, for high growth. So you want to just find a ton of A players. The problem, of course, is that you don't have A players all the time on your team slash workplace slash whatever. You don't always have all the A players. Instead, you have different kinds. Uh, some people are, are B players, right? And they might be over here. So they have a really good attitude, really high on the attitude scale. But, you know, they're not as productive. Now, that might be because they just don't, you know, know exactly what they're supposed to do in this particular job at this time. Maybe they had a past working in a different kind of situation and they were just better at that and they're learning a new thing. And so your goal here is to coach them in this direction. You can coach people, right? You can teach them. Maybe they're not really good at, you know, but we do this at the church. Maybe they're not really good at public speaking yet, but you can coach them to become better public speakers. And so even though they're not productive currently as a preacher, they might become enormously productive over time. You always got to start somewhere. So you're cool if you're a boss and you have B players because you can think to yourself, they've got a great attitude, they're teachable, and I can help them become A players. If you have a C player, you know, bad attitude and lowly productive, there is one thing you do with that person. You fire them. Um, like tomorrow. But it's a holiday. Doesn't matter. Right? Get on the phone. Say, sorry, this isn't working at all. You get rid of those people because, you know, that's exactly what you don't want. Low productive, bad attitude people. There's lots and lots of those in the world. We know that for sure. But here's the thing. You would think that this D person would be kind of good, right? Because they're highly productive. Right? They, they do all the stuff, but their attitude stinks. And so, my friend, he, he calls this person a, a, a brilliant jerk. Right? Uh, think Dwight Schrute. Right, he, he's the guy who's the best salesperson around, and so you're, you're kind of in your mind thinking, my business will take a hit if I get rid of this person because they're so good at what they do. But nobody likes working with them, ever. They're highly critical, highly divisive, always a snotty attitude toward the leadership that the people in the back are like, whatever. And they just keep going. They're, the, they're the, the, the wide receiver who is fantastic at catching every ball thrown their way, but who stinks as a person in the locker room. Do you want these people on your team? Well, most of us are like, well, I have to have them on my team so I can keep the thing going. The problem, of course, is you probably should get rid of the brilliant jerk because the more brilliant jerks you have, the fewer and fewer A players will stick around. Because, listen, they live on division. And you know, just like I know, that divisions destroy any group that's called to accomplish something together. Divisions destroy any group that is called to accomplish something together. I don't care if you're in a war. They call it friendly fire. I've never understood that term. Fire's fire. Doesn't matter who it came from. 
But friendly fire destroys it. If you're on a basketball team and you've got a guy who's just a ball hog and thinks he's the greatest thing in the world, right? Highly productive but rotten attitude. You just, you know, it ruins everything. How many times has your team gotten to the end of the play? I mean, I'm talking to Chicago, so very rarely for your team. But like, <clears throat> so, so when you, you get to the end of the season and you realize uh, they lose the big game and then, and, and, and then you hear through the news media, that they don't get along with each other, that there was this infighting between this guy and this guy. How many times have we heard that story? Of course that's the case, because chemistry is more important sometimes than talent. You've got to have chemistry if you want to move forward with any group, even the church. Actually, especially the church. I think the Apostle Paul knew this, just like you and I know this. I didn't need to show you my, my chart to know this. But the Apostle Paul knew this, that the churches that he planted and he left behind, if these churches were to continue on in, to use his language, the same mind, with the same commitments and the same vision, they would eventually flourish. They'd make a difference in their communities. They'd grow but, but, if they didn't, if divisions came in, if a bunch of brilliant jerks showed up, maybe all for naught. So Paul gets this, this, this report from some people, you know. Uh, he's been in this correspondence with the church in Corinth. And he gets a verbal report after he wrote a letter talking to them a little bit. He has some people visit. You ever had people visit from a former place that you lived? And the first thing you ask them is, hey, how's it going back in such and such? And these people, we're told they're from Chloe's household. These people come and they say, yeah, it's not good. Yeah, Corinth is not good, Paul. Well, what's, what's not good about it? Well, they're, they're divided. And so the passage we're going to look at in, in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 to 17, has to do with divisions in the church. This is one of the key issues that the Corinthians were dealing with. And here's the question that I actually want to ask more broadly. I want to ask and answer it. How should we, as Christians, think about divisions in the church? Where do they come from? How common are they? But ultimately, how do you solve them? I think Paul actually points out a lot of that in this little passage. And so here, I've got three things to say about divisions in the church. Number one, divisions are unfortunately common. Second, that they are culturally driven. And third, they are biblically mended. Unfortunately common, culturally driven, and biblically mended. Here's the first of those. Um, divisions are unfortunately common. Look at verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is where the book begins in earnest. Prior to this, Paul was given his greetings. You know, in the ancient world, you start with your name, which is way better, right? Don't you think? Isn't that way better than the way we do it? Hey, you know, at the end, well, you remember, you guys remember paper letters? I'm old. So do you remember paper letters and you didn't know who it was from and you had to flip through? Oh, it's from Joe. I'm thinking you crumple it up. Right? They give you that at the front end. Paul. This is from Paul. Here's my title, Apostle of Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you. There's a greeting. And then usually with Christian letters, they say, here's what I'm praying for when I think of you. And so Paul was saying, oh, I pray for all these different things. And then he ends his prayer. You find this at the beginning of almost all of his letters. And then right at the end of that, he starts the reason that he wrote. 
So what is the reason he writes 1 Corinthians? I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. This word appeal, I mean, we read it and it sounds very kind of, uh, you know, academic. Well, I appeal to you, brothers. That's not, the word actually has a lot more guts in it. It's got a lot more passion in it. It's a word that Paul uses when he talks about how he was pleading with God to take away what he called the thorn in his flesh. A lot of people don't know what that was. The possible he had this particular challenge that he had in 2 Corinthians. He describes it. Some people think as he had bad eyesight. Whatever it was, he pleaded. Those are his words. He pleaded with the Lord three separate times that God would take it from him. It was something that was stopping him from doing his ministry. Something that was causing him a great deal of harm and difficulty. You guys ever prayed for something like that? Is it academic when you pray that way? Lord, it would be very nice of you if you could uh, take this away. I will be revisiting you tomorrow on the same subject. No, 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 no. God, would you please take this away? Oh, it's killing me. I'm pleading with you. Some guts in it, right? So I appeal to you. I'm pleading with you. Brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So he says the same thing three times. Yeah, just like every parent in the room, right? Clean your room. Make sure your room's clean. Is your room clean? <laughs> like you we, 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 we triple up some of our sayings sometimes in order for rhetorical effect. You know, he's just unruly, unholy, and unacceptable. That's way better than saying it's unacceptable, right? You add a little bit more gusto to those things because you really mean it. He doesn't mean three different things. He said, listen, you've got to agree. Look, in other words, there be no divisions among you. Be united in the same mind and the, and the same judgment. For... Right? Why? Look, it's, it's been reported to me by, there it is, Chloe's people, that there's quarreling. This, this word actually means rivalries. Right? Teams have developed. There's quarreling among you, my brothers. People have divided up into different groups and they have their agenda that is at odds with another agenda and they're bickering and fighting between one another. In other words, says the Apostle Paul, there are three things that are guaranteed in this life. Death, taxes, and church divisions. I, I lived in a town. Uh, my, my, my parents lived in, in this town. I, I, I lived in a town just north of it, north of the Canadian border, just south of the Canadian border. There's this little town called Linden. It's a beautiful little town. It's all American town. Uh, it's got about 10,000 people in it, and it has something like 250 churches, okay? It is the most churched town, I think, in the world per capita, okay? When you drive through Linden, seriously, you house, house, church, house, church, house, house, church, house, 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 church. It's crazy. The names of the church are really interesting too. First Reformed, Second Reformed, Third Reformed, Netherlands Reformed, whatever that is, right? Because those Dutch, you know those Dutch. 
right? <laughs> Netherlands reformed, right? Ne- Netherlands true reformed, progressive reformed, united reformed. Oh man, I, I, I don't know. You've been talking to people in the town eventually and you ask them, what in the world? Why are there so many churches? They're like, well, I just, you know, if you want to know the history, well, there's a guy in that church. You ended up not lighting with that person said on that day. And then they went down like three houses down and they formed another church. But then, of course, that went for a little while. And then three houses down and three houses down and three houses down. Seriously, we, like I said, we were, above, we were above the Canadian border. It took about 25, 30 minutes for people to drive from Linden to our town in Abbotsford. You had to go through an international border to get there. And there were people from Linden who were driving to our church. And I'd say, why are you driving from Linden with this 250 churches to our church? They'd say, well, we just can't find one. <laughs> what? Well, you just like this one better. Are you like, come on. Yeah. Divide over all sorts of stuff. Doesn't really matter what it is. We divide, and then we, we just go down the street. The church, though, it might surprise you, has been having this problem from the very get-go, as is evidenced by the fact that the Corinthian church was, but they weren't the only ones. If you go to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 6, you know, the gospel's going forth, and the, and the apostles are going out, and they're preaching the gospel all different kinds of places. But there were some things that were, were, were causing it to kind of... You know, there's some obstacles to the, to the gospel's movement around the land. Here's one of them. Uh, now in these days, when the disciples were, look, they were increasing number. So great mission endeavor. They were increasing in number. Um, a complaint. Uh, by the, now notice who it is. They're the Hellenists. Those are Greek-speaking Jews. People did not stick around. They're called the part of what they call the diaspora. They're people who did not stick around within Jerusalem, but had spread out across the empire and essentially, essentially had taken on a bunch of Greek customs along with their Judaism. Um, the Hellenists, they arose against the Hebrews, so the people who had stayed at home, you know, the true blues, the ones who were like, I've lived here all my days and my kids will live here all their days because we're, we're committed. And the issue was that their, their widows or being neglected in the daily distribution. See, in those days, you needed to have a man tied to your family in order for you to have any money. And so there were widows with their husbands who had died, and they don't have any boys around, and so they were totally destitute. And so churches would pick up these widows and say, well, we're going to care for you. They had a list, roles of widows that they would take care of. But apparently, in this case, uh, somebody in the leadership of the church, according to the Hellenists, was either adding more Hebrew women, you know, more stay-at-home women to this list, or they were giving more food to them or, or something. It was an imbalance. And so the Hellenists got angry and they said, do you know that our widows aren't being taken care of like those Jewish widows? Because this is a racial thing now, right? Or a cultural thing. We didn't stay at home because your grandpappy did and now we're getting punished for it. There's a fight in the church. And the 12, they summoned the full number of the disciples and they said, look, it's not right that we should give up preaching. It's just saying, it's not preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, I want you to pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we'll appoint to this duty. But we'll devote, we, we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the world, word. And what they said that pleased the whole gathering, this is the last time that that ever happened in any church ever. 
Um, they pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and now notice who else they chose. Tell me, do these sound like Greek names or Hebrew names? Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, Saint. Just kidding, that's not Saint Nicholas, right? <laughs> Proselyte of Antioch. So basically what they did is they picked a whole bunch of Hellenist people to defend the Hellenist widows to take care of the Hellenist problem. So they solved it. Praise God, and the word of God goes forward. Isn't that amazing? But it, don't miss the point. At the very get-go, people got irritated because their mommies didn't have enough food. Not like those other mommies. Uh, here's another one. In the year 249 A.D., there was an emperor who came to the throne in Rome named Decius. He was only on the throne until 251, so like two and a half years or so, okay? 249 to 251. Here's the thing. Before Decius came to the throne, the attitude toward Christians in the empire was pretty loose. I mean, prior, long prior to that, it was a little harsher. But like just immediately prior to this, you could be a Christian and hold your particular Christian viewpoints all over the place. In fact, most of the empire was becoming Christian. But then Decius came to the throne, and Decius was irritated because things weren't going really well in the, in the, in the, the, uh, the kingdom, and he believed that the reason they weren't going well is because the gods, not the Christian god, but the gods, the traditional gods of the Roman society, had not received enough worship because too many people were going to the Christians and worshiping the one true god. So he said, enough. Nobody can worship the Christian God. Everybody needs to worship the traditional gods, including the Caesar, me. And what we're going to do to prove that you have worshipped the gods is you have to go before some state representative, pitch, pinch some incense, and throw it on a candle and say something like, Caesar is Lord. For this, we are going to give you a card. Does it sound familiar? So they're going to give you a card to prove that you are going to, and this card will let you take part of all of the things in the society. Now, some Christian people were like, man, I don't, I don't want to get my head chopped off for this. This is ridiculous. I, it's, just, it's just a little saying. You need to throw a little incense. It's not a big deal. So they went and they did it, and they got their little card. It was called the Libellus. But other Christians often in the same local churches, were saying, no, this is absolutely wrong. I can't do this. And so they would stand up against the empire, and for their action, they got beheaded. Cast out of the, of the community, maybe. Thrown to the lions, maybe. I can you imagine if you, you're in that local church and your brother, he was one who stood up for Jesus in this moment and said, he, no, he's not, I'm, my brother's not going to worship you stupid Caesar. And for doing that, he got beheaded. So he's dead now. And your friend, though, actually did give in. And they left the church. But hey, like I said, Decius was only on the throne for a few years. And then when Decius came off, the next emperor was like, hey, it's no big deal. You guys, that was a stupid idea. Everybody can go back to church. So now, in the same church, you, who lost your brother during this time of persecution, have to sit next to the person who ran away. And you have to treat them how? How? 
So the, the fight exploded in the early church. They had to figure out what in the world are we going to do with these people? Do we welcome them back in or do we fight them? I'll leave it to you and your small groups to make that decision for yourselves regarding which side you would be on. But you see it, right? You see the fight. Man, we fight all the time. I was at a conference just a couple weeks ago, well, months ago, and I was in, in, in British Columbia in Canada, and there was a whole bunch of pastors from all over the country there, and I spent some time talking to many of them who would pull me aside quietly, right, because I had moved from British Columbia to the United States, and they had said to me quietly, they said, so what's it like? And I said, it's amazing. Freedom is amazing. Anyway, and they, and they would say to me, they would say to me, um, I'm, I'm at my wit's end, Jeff. I, I don't know what to do. I, I, feel, I feel like I can't do this anymore. This ministry, I feel like God called me into the ministry, but I'm so tired. I'm so whatever. And whenever I'd ask them, guys, this happened like six, seven, eight times. Whenever I'd ask them the question, why, you know what the answer was? Every time. COVID. Look, Jeff. If I choose as a pastor to tell the people in my church that we are going to honor the government's desire for us to wear masks, half of my church freak out and say that I'm supporting tyranny. So then I go the other way and I said, no, no, we're not going to wear the mask. And then the other half freak out and say, I'm trying to kill everybody. It's the same thing with the vaccines. It's the same thing with whether we should close our church when the, church, the government says we should close it or we should have services indoor or outside. I'm trying my best to navigate all of this. But this might be new news to most of you. In seminary, they don't teach epidemiology. <laughs> or health policy. So you've got these pastors who just want to preach the word of God and shepherd their people and they have no idea what to do because half of the church is angry with the other half of the church. I had a friend who called me just this week and he said, hey Jeff, I'm doing this paper. Can you do this, writing this article for a local paper. Can you tell me what you think the biggest challenge for the church is going to be in the next year? And I said, oh yeah, piece of cake. There's going to be hundreds and thousands of pastors who quit. Why do you think so? Oh, man. Because most of the people in the church are so angry with each other about what's on their face, and they forget that they're brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, we, 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 we like our divisions. You know how it usually happens, the division? There's a guy who wrote a blog post a number of years ago. I loved it. Here's what he said. He goes, look, let me describe for you. He'd been in a bunch of church conflicts. And he said, let me describe for you how, how it goes. He called it the anatomy of a church conflict. So here you go. See if this sounds familiar. Um, you could also say family conflict, friend conflict, work conflict, whatever. An offense of, occurs. If somebody does something to somebody else that you don't like. A biased view of the offense is shared with friends, right? Because when that happens to you, you just want to get your friends around you to understand. You know, I just want you to understand. I just want to share with you in prayer, right, what's gone on. And, of course, they're your friends. And so they're like, yeah, I really want to support you, and absolutely. And I don't understand why that other person would do that. Of course, the other person's gathering their friends around. And they're saying, that other person's been really mean to me. And they say, I don't know why that person's there, but they're going to support you. Friends support you. But you're only telling it from one side, so it's a biased view. Friends, of course, take up the offense because they, they love you and they don't want to ruin your relationship. 
sides then begin to form, right? You got Team X for Team Sally versus Team Joanna. If your name's Sally or Joanna, I'm sorry, right? But then exaggerated statements are made. You know that, Sally. She always does these things. She's never been kind. Um, after the exaggerated statements are made uh, in the heat of conflict, those involved, they, they hear things that were never said, right? Because they're so used to the exaggerated comments that you start thinking that people said something that was exaggerated that wasn't true. Oh, I heard that she said this about you in the line at Costco. Isn't that horrible? She was never in the line at Costco, but doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. She would have. If she were there, she would have. Right? They, they hear things that were never said, and then they say things they wish they'd never said. Yeah, I just did it in the heat of the moment, though. I just did it in the heat of the moment. Am I sorry about it? Maybe. Past offenses then, unrelated to the original offense, surface. You know, 20 years ago, Sally was a jerk too. I asked her to borrow the hose and she said no. Who does that? People call each other liars. And then those who try to solve the problem, whether you're a friend or you're in church leadership when it comes to church conflict, you become blamed. For not following, and it's always the same thing, proper procedure. I understand what you're trying to say, but my concern with you is the process. The process was unprocessed. You need more process with the process. That's the problem. Yeah, but what about the content of the concern? I don't care, process. You didn't follow the proper procedure, and and then you become the new focus of anger. But most importantly, people get hurt, and a dying world has another reason to reject the one who offers life. You will know they are Christians by their love. Divisions are unfortunately common. Where do they come from? Like what what exactly is causing us to do this? Um, Second, I think divisions are culturally driven. Let me, let me show you what I mean. This is an interesting little passage. Paul explains precisely what he means with the divisions. I've heard that there are divisions among you. What I mean, specifically, is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now, there's some historical background to this that will make it make an enormous amount of sense. So um, take with me a little a little field trip back to uh, the the Greek world, right? The world of Greek philosophers. One of the things that Greek philosophers, you know, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, that they were really committed to was what we call rhetoric. How how do you speak, how do you communicate with people in such a way that you can persuade them? The Greeks established the way of persuasion that we still use today. Whenever you watch like a car ad or you talk to a car salesman, people are basically using the same rules. Here they are. You can persuade somebody if you have proper ethos, pathos, and logos. Logos is simple. Basically, the thing you're trying to sell them on has to actually have merit, right? If the, the argument actually actually makes sense, the car actually has to look decent. It has to run kind of decent. It has to make sense to the person who's hearing you. Can't be objectionable on that ground. Your ethos is the way they feel about you as a person, right? You've ever been buying a car and the guy's got his shirt, you know, down here. Sorry, that was really offensive, right? 
but you know, there's hair everywhere, and, and you're, you're like, whoa, uh, he's a little weird, you know? That's pathos. You're saying you don't like his pathos. Other people love it. You see that guy's shirt? He knows what he's doing. But that's pathos. It's the feeling you get about the person who is communicating with you. And then, sorry, that's ethos. Pathos is the feeling you get about the argument itself. Like, does the person, when they're making the argument, where they're communicating the stuff, does the person sound believable? In the argument itself. I'm not asking about them and their person. I'm asking about the argument itself. When you get these three things together, ethos, pathos, and logos, basically what the Greeks said was, um, you can convince anybody of anything. So people started to study this and say, hmm, that's kind of true. And it's a power in being able to persuade people of stuff. You know, that's, like a, that's, that's some secret sauce there. You could even get rich if you could do this. So there were a group of people named the Sophists. Sophists, S-O-P-H-I-S-T-S. The Sophists who said, yeah, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go around from town to town and we're going to give these lectures and our goal is to tickle the ears of the people who are there. It doesn't really matter what we're arguing. All we want to do is tickle the ears of the people there, convince them of certain things, and then they'll give us money because it's either funny or it's, uh, it's going to teach them something or whatever. And so they did. The sophists were rock stars of their day. Like weeks prior to one of the famous sophists coming into a city like Corinth, there'd be like you know, placards and billboards and everything up. He's coming. Dio Chrysostom's coming. He's coming. He's coming. You know, like, like, like your favorite band, you do's going to be here, right? And they'd be all over the place, and people would line up, and they'd come, and they'd pay good money to go and listen to this person talk. And this person would talk, and they were just enamored. And then when they left, you could buy stuff at the merch table, guys. There's always a merch table. Cups and necklaces and T-shirts, you know. Said Dr. J. Bucky Buck on the, you know, walk around. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of his. This is the world that existed in those days. This is what entertainment was. This is what everybody. Now listen, you would interpret anybody coming into your town. If you're a Corinthian, you'd interpret anybody coming into your town who was going to share a message about something, you'd, you'd assume them as a sophist. They're coming here for money, for persuasion, for fame, and to create a team. Back to the passage then. Here's my problem, Paul says. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos, who, by the way, was a very gifted communicator. He was an itinerant teacher who went from city to city. I follow Cephas, or Peter. It's the Greek name for Peter. And, or I follow Christ. There's always one of those in the group. Well, I, I believe in Jesus. But, you know, he was a good speaker. Do you remember all the crowds that he would come and gather around him? So even though he had not physically come to your place, you'd heard about him and you're like, no, I'm one of those people. Paul's not as good. Cephas, not as good. But Jesus, he could heal, man. So do you hear what they've done? They've basically, like, guys, they've basically said that the, the cultural values outside of the church the way that we see the world are now being imported into the church and they're evaluating each other based upon those outside values. Uh, Paul continues here then. He says, okay, but is Christ divided? 
Like, I, I get it, outside the wall, this is all about division and everybody's got their team, but is Christ, meaning is, are Christians divided like this? Uh, was Paul crucified for you? He uses his own name and goes like, are you guys crazy? Why are you lifting me up on that pedestal? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I love this statement then. He's like, look, I thank God that I baptized none of you. He's not trying to put baptism down. He's basically saying, man, if I baptized more of you people, more of you would join my team and that would stink. I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then he's got this, you know, spirit-inspired memory. Oh, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. But beyond that, look, I don't know whether I baptized anybody else. Don't hold me to this, but I don't know. But here's what you need to know. Christ did not send me to baptize. He's not denigrating baptism. He's trying to say, no, Christ didn't send me to form a team around myself but to preach the gospel. And when I preached the gospel, when I shared the message, it was not with, look, words of eloquent wisdom. That's what the sophists use. Lest the cross be emptied of its power. See, if I used all those tools that the sophists use, you would think that you are convinced because I'm a really good orator. But if I don't use those tools and you're still convinced, then that's the cross. That's the power of Jesus which he gets into in a minute. But here's the thing that I really, really, really need you to see. Their divisions resulted from the culture outside the church defining the culture inside the church. So when, when we let the unchristian world define for Christians how our relationships should be with one another, division is sure to be the result. You know why? Because it's the result out there. Have you ever lived in a more divided time? Well, it shouldn't surprise you then that if we take the rules and cues from the wider society and we bring them into the church and say, these are the values we're going to live by and the things we're going to fight about, it'll create the same division that's out there. But the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be a place where we know us by our, by our love. So you say, okay, um, but what does that look like? Thank you for asking. I'll give you several examples, some goofy and cheesy and others a little bit more pointed. Um, so when I was uh, a little bit younger, my, my son grew up playing baseball. There was a team in our area called Cloverdale. Um, Cloverdale was our arch nemesis, little league arch nemesis. We used to have a saying called, uh, if you go and play at Cloverdale, don't get Cloverdaled. And by that, we meant make sure that the umpire isn't from Cloverdale, because if they are, you're dead. Like, there's no way you're going to win, because they cheat, they're horrible, right? That's what we would say to each other, because we'd lose sometimes, you know? And the only way you lose is because the other team cheated. So, go to Cloverdale, already got this existing thing in my thing, and the umpire was terrible. He was calling all sorts of terrible things, and made, made it worse, and my kid was pitching, and of course, he always throws strikes. He's never thrown a ball in his entire life, and so I'm giving it to the, I'm giving it to the umpire, and of course, the, some of the other players on the other team start looking over at me and like, hey, quiet down. They said that they had the audacity, these 13-year-old kids, to say that to me. So I start talking to them, right? Back with them. Oh, you shut your mouth. I was, I was right into it, man. Right into it. We lost, of course, right? Because they cheated. And so after the, after the game, I'm walking out irritated. This guy comes up. He taps me on the shoulder and he says, Pastor Jeff. 
Yes. Hey, do you remember last week you came and spoke at our church? You were like the visiting guy. I go to this church called Crossroads just down the way. Yeah, my son played on that thing. I looked over his son. His son is the kid I was like having a go at. And so this guy's like, yeah, you know what? Remember you met my son last week? And I had, I had, I'd absolutely remember this son. And I thought to myself afterwards, I was driving home and I was like, oh my word, I have just taken my allegiance for this stupid baseball team and lifted it right up above my allegiance to my brother in Christ. Yeah, that's the way the world works. If you cheer for the Packers, you hate the Bears and everybody else who likes the Bears. How dare they? Anybody who's a Christian doesn't like the Bears. Are you kidding? Okay, that's a, that's a little bit cheesy. Ah, we don't do that in the church. Okay, but how about this? When I was uh, in Canada, 2010, we had uh, the Olympics in Canada, right? And in 2010, we were... Um, in 2010, we had a bunch of people in our church who started putting these Canadian flags on everything, you know, because go Canada, go Team Canada, go Team Canada. And I went around and I was like, no, no, no. We started pulling the things out. They got so mad at me because I was pulling these flags out. Oh, you just, you're such an American. I'm both. But like, you're stupid. How dare you? You know, Canada, Canada. And I said to them, listen, I'm not, I'm not doing anything crazy here. I need you to understand that when people come through the door of our church, this, this is the embassy of the kingdom of God. This is, I understand, you're Canadians, you're Americans, you're whatever. I get it. But when you come through the doors of the local church, all of those things are diminished and our unity in Jesus Christ is lifted up. So that's, that's why we put in front of people no barriers for stuff. That's why we do that. And so, but they were like, well, you know what? If you're going to do that, you can go back where you came from. And I, so I did. So any, anyway. <laughs> yeah, but what are we doing here? Well, okay, but we're going to take our nationalities now. We're going to lift them up about our, above our unity of Christ. Because that's what you do out there. That's what you do. I'm better because I'm American. I'm better because I'm Canadian. We bring it in here. I'm better. I'm better. We're better. Um, okay. Uh, I used to work at a church that had a citizenship committee, which was basically a Republican action committee. Right? So anytime there was an issue in the church or an issue in the culture, the citizens committee would come together and they put a report together and they'd stand in front of the church and say, here's the report about how you should believe about this particular political issue. Very rarely did they quote the Bible. But it was all Republican politics. All of it. I knew some Democrats in the church. Nobody else knew they were Democrats. Nobody did. Because had they outed themselves as Democrats, they would have been kicked out of the church. It was even said that way. We don't even know how you could be a Christian and vote for a Democrat. That's right. We divide over politics all the time outside the church, right? Little R, little D, donkey, elephant. That's my team. We come into the church and we elevate our political commitment in the United States of America at this particular moment of time in history over our commitment to the eternal family of God. Um, there was a pastor friend of mine who had uh, a guy in his church who, after every sermon that my friend gave, they had a Sunday night service as well. This guy would go back to his house and he would write up. He would write up 
a review of the sermon from the morning, not using the Bible as the standard for what it was that the guy should have said, but using John MacArthur for the standard. That's not John MacArthur's fault. This guy went back and just read John MacArthur's commentaries and said, you know, MacArthur says, MacArthur says, MacArthur said, and he would come back and he'd hand the papers to the guy that night and say, here, this week you can study my review and understand how you can get better. Because the way you can get better is by being more John MacArthur. Because I'm of, I'm of MacArthur. Well, I'm of Piper. I'm of Bucknam, said no one ever. <laughs> right, well, we basically just said, look, I have got my favorite person. They communicate my favorite way, and that means that they're better than everyone else. I have Apollo. So we lift up our preferences for a particular celebrity preacher over, uh, over, over the community of, of God. I talked to a guy just a few weeks ago, and he was telling me, this is not here, but he was telling me, um, I, you know what, Jeff, I don't think I can eat. He's a Christian brother, leader in the church. I don't think I can eat with people who don't take a vaccine. Um, brother, you know that Jesus ate with lepers, like literal lepers. That if, if you were ceremonially unclean, like Jesus would be like, come on over. Nobody else would, because that would ruin their religiosity. But Jesus would be like, yeah, tax collector, prostitute, everybody, come on. Right, but you know what, 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 what particular health orders are in our community we lay up above the values of the kingdom of the kingdom of, of God. Divisions happen in the church when we take the values of outside the church and we drop them inside the church. We decide to live by those, then live by the kingdom of God's values. So you say to me, okay, well, what kind of kingdom of God's values? So as I bring this to a rapid close. Divisions are biblically mended. Um, I want to go back to the very beginning of this passage and tell you the solution to the problem was actually had at the very get-go. You ready? I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not, my, it's not just my Lord Jesus Christ, it's your Lord Jesus Christ. You know the person that you don't like over that issue? That Christian, yeah, their Lord is Jesus Christ too, just like yours is. In fact, they're a, they're a brother. They're part of the family of God. You can see it down here. There's quarreling among you, my brothers. He brackets it with the language. Don't you guys realize that you are family? Now, you and I, we hear that. And we're like, ah, this is a big deal. Because the most important relationships we have in our lives usually are with our friends. And that's because we live after the Industrial Revolution and people move away from their families all the time. But in that world, you lived with your family for generations and generations and generations. The most important relationships you had in the world was not with your friends. It was with your family. If you were a brother, you were a brother forever. You defended your brother's honor. Sometimes you'd have to go into battle with your brother, your clan. Those were the tightest, most significant relationships in your entire world. So Jesus takes this concept and he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to form a, a family that is not defined, it's not defined by biology, but it's going to be defined by faith. I'm going to take this family and I'm going to create it under me. And so while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and the brothers stood outside asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who told him, look, who's my mother and who are my brothers? Of course, he's like the lady outside. 
Uh, and he's stretching out his hand toward his disciples. He said, well, here, here are my mother and my brothers. Look at these people right here. Do you understand? This is, the, this is my family. With that tight-knit, forever, eternal kind of commitment. This is, this is my family. So what, what difference does that make? Well, actually, it makes a lot of difference to the Apostle Paul because he starts applying it to some really interesting things. Um, I say this to your shame, he says. Can it be there is no one among you wise enough to settle the dispute between, between brothers? People are having lawsuits against each other in 1 Corinthians. Can, can no one settle a dispute between brothers? But you see it, brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers, to have lawsuits at all uh, with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own Brothers, whose money are you trying to extract from them? Family money? Don't you already have it? So listen, the solution to the problem of divisions is for you and me to recognize that we are family. But not just family like, yeah, my sister, she's kind of cool, whatever, but family forever. I had a friend who told me one time, I was really upset with this guy who was, who was uh, you know, he, he was another leader, and I was just like, I was having a debate, just, you know, rage fantasy against the guy with sharing it with a good friend. And my good friend listened to my entire rage fantasy, and he said, you know, that other leader, Jeff, you're probably going to be living next to him in heaven. Oh! Oh! But you know what? He's probably, he's probably right, because, you know, at the end of all of this, dear family, at the end of all of this, this is what it looks like. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, all the things we divide over. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And look, they were clothed in white robes, all of them wearing the same thing with palm branches in their hands, everybody carrying the same palm branch. And they were crying out with a unified, loud voice focused on God himself. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lord. So uh, there will be no vaccine stickers then? Uh, there will be no masks? No different colored shirts, no celebrity swag? Everyone will be saved on the same basis so all will be dressed the same and speaking the same things. You do realize that's where you and I are headed, sister and brother, forever and ever. So if that's the unity that we're headed toward, perhaps we can start acting like it now. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for your kindness to us in presenting us passages of Scripture that have relevance not just in their first century context, but have been relevant throughout the history of the church. Father, we confess that we like to divide, we like to enthrone our opinions, and we like to then project them on everybody else. I pray, Father, for a sense of humility, a self-awareness, Father, an attitude that recognizes that the people we often fight with, Father, are our brothers and sisters, and they will be so forever and ever and ever. So, Father, warm our hearts to our brothers and sisters. 
Help us to see them as our true family. We pray it for your glory. They will know we are Christians by our love and for our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.